Notre Dame de Paris by Victor Hugo. Book 7, Chapter 3. The Bells. Ever since the morning when he was pilloried, the people living in the neighborhood of Notre Dame fancied that Quasimodo's zeal for bell ringing had grown very cold. Up to that time, he had pulled the bells upon every occasion, and no occasion at all. Their music sounded from prime to complins. The belfry rang a peal for high mass, or the bells sounded a merry chime for a wedding or a christening, mingling and blending in the air like a rich embroidery of all sorts of melodious sounds. The old church, resonant and re-echoing, was forever sounding its joy bells. There seemed to be an ever-present spirit of noise and caprice, which shouted and sang through those brazen tongues. Now that spirit seemed to have vanished. The cathedral seemed somber, and given over to silence. For festivals and funerals there was still the simple tolling, dry and bare, such as the ritual required, and nothing more. Of the double noise which a church sends forth, from its organ within and its bells without, only the organ remained. It seemed as if there were no musician left in the belfry towers. And yet, Quasimodo was still there. What had happened to him? Did the shame and despair felt upon the pillory still rankle within him? Did the executioner's lashes still tingle in his soul? And had the agony caused by such treatment killed all emotion within him, even his passion for the bells? Or had Big Marie a rival in the heart of the ringer of Notre Dame? And were the big bell and her fourteen sisters neglected for a fairer and more attractive object? It happened that in this year of grace, 1482, the Feast of the Annunciation fell upon Tuesday, the 25th of March. On that day, the air was so pure and so clear that Quasimodo felt some slight return of his love for the bells. He therefore climbed up into the North Tower, while below, the beetle threw wide open the church doors, which were then made of huge panels of hard wood covered with leather, edged with gilded iron nails, and framed in carvings very cunningly wrought. The high belfry cage reached, Quasimodo gazed at the six bells for some time with a sad shake of the head, as if mourning over the strange thing which had come between his heart and them. But when he had set them swinging, when he felt that cluster of bells vibrating beneath his touch, when he saw, for he could not hear, the quivering octave run up and down that sonorous scale as a bird hops from twig to twig, when the demon of music, that demon which shakes a dazzling sheaf of runs, trills, and arpeggios, had taken possession of the poor dear fellow, then he was happy again, he forgot everything, and as his heart swelled with bliss, his face grew radiant. He came and went, he clapped his hands, he ran from one rope to another, he encouraged the six singers with voice and gesture, as the leader of an orchestra spurs on intelligent performers. "'Go on,' he cried. "'Go on, Gabrielle. Pour all your music into the public square. 
This is a high holiday. Tibold, no laziness. Your pace is slackening. Go on, go on, I say. Are you growing rusty, sluggard? That's good. Quick, quick. Don't let me see the clapper. Make them all as deaf as I am. That's it, Tibold. Bravely done. Guillaume. Guillaume, you are the biggest of them all, and Pasquier is the smallest, and yet Pasquier rings the best. I'll wager that they who can hear, hear him better than they do you. Good, good, my Gabrielle. Louder, louder. Hello, what are you two doing up there, you sparrows? I don't see you make the very least noise. What are those brazen beaks about yonder, that they seem to yawn when they should be singing? There, work away. Tis the feast of the Annunciation. The sun shines bright. We want a fine peal of bells. Poor Guillaume, you're quite out of breath, my fat lad. He was wholly absorbed in urging on his bells, all six of which bounded to and fro as best they could, and shook their shining sides like a noisy team of Spanish mules goaded by the sharp voice of their driver. All at once, as his gaze fell between the broad slate scales which covered the steep belfry wall up to a certain height, he saw in the square below a young girl, quaintly attired, who paused, spread a carpet on the ground, upon which a little goat took its place, and a group of spectators formed about them. This sight suddenly changed the course of his ideas, and chilled his musical enthusiasm as a blast of wind chills melted resin. He stopped, turned his back on the chime of bells, and crouched behind the slated eaves, fixing on the dancing girl that dreamy, tender, gentle look which had once before astonished the archdeacon. The neglected bells ceased suddenly and all at once, to the great disappointment of the lovers of chimes, who were eagerly listening to the peal from the Pont au Change, and who now went away as much amazed as a dog that has been shown a bone and then receives a stone. Chapter 4. Ananke. It happened that on a fine morning in that same month of March, I believe it was Saturday the 29th, Saint Eustache's day, our young friend the student, Jean Frollo du Moulin, noticed while dressing that his breeches, which contained his purse, gave forth no clink of metal. Poor purse, said he, pulling it from his pocket. What, not the smallest coin? How cruelly have the dice, Venus, and mugs of beer gutted thee! How empty, wrinkled, and flat you are! You look like the breast of a fury! I just ask you, Master Cicero and Master Seneca, whose dog's-eared works I see scattered over the floor, what does it avail me to know, better than any governor of the mint or any Jew from the Pont au Change, that one golden crown piece is worth thirty-five anzans at twenty-five pence and eight Paris farthings each, and that another is worth thirty-six anzans at twenty-six pence and six tours farthings each, if I have not a paltry copper to stake upon the double six. O oh, Consul Cicero, that is not a calamity to be overcome by paraphrases, by— 
quemad modum and verum enim vero, which mean how and verily. He dressed himself sadly. A thought struck him as he laced his shoes, but he at first rejected it. However, it recurred to him, and he put on his waistcoat wrong side out, an evident sign of some violent mental conflict. At last he dashed down his cap, exclaimed, "'So much the worse. Come what will, I will go to my brother. I shall catch a lecture, but I shall also catch a crown piece.' Then he hastily put on his cassock with furred shoulder pads, picked up his cap, and dashed out of the room. He went down the Rue de la Arpe towards the city. As he passed the Rue de la Huchette, the smell of those wonderful spits perpetually revolving there tickled his olfactories, and he cast an affectionate glance at the gigantic cookshop which once drew from the Franciscan friar Caltagironi the pathetic exclamation, Veramente questa rotisseria sono cosa stupenda. Truly, these cookshops are wonderful places. But Jeanne had no money to pay for breakfast, and with a deep sigh he entered the door of the Petit Chatelet, that huge double trefoil of massive towers which guarded the entrance to the city. He did not even take time to throw a stone as he passed, as was customary, at the wretched statue of that Perinet Leclerc who delivered over the Paris of Charles the Sixth to the English a crime which his effigy, its surface defaced by stones and covered with mud, has expiated for three centuries, at the corner of the Rues de la Arpe and de Boussy, as in a perpetual pillory. Crossing the Petit Pont, and striding down the Rue Neuve-Saint-Genevieve, Jean de Molendino found himself face to face with Notre-Dame. Then his former indecision overcame him, and he walked around the statue of Monsieur Legree for several moments, repeating in agony, The lecture is a certainty. The crown piece is doubtful. He stopped a beetle as he came from the cloister. Where is the archdeacon of Josas? I think that he is in his cell, in the tower, said the beetle, and I don't advise you to disturb him, unless you come from some such person as the pope or the king." Jeanne clapped his hands. The devil! What a splendid opportunity to see the famous abode of sorceries! Strengthened by this thought, he boldly entered the little black door, and began to climb the winding staircase of Saint-Gilles, which leads to the upper stories of the tower. "'We'll see,' said he as he climbed, "'by the Holy Virgin's shoestrings, it must be something very queer which my reverend brother keeps so closely hidden. They say that he lights the fires of hell up there, and cooks the philosopher's stone over the blaze. My word, I care no more for the philosopher's stone than for any common pebble, and I should rather find a good omelet of Easter eggs over his fire than the biggest philosopher's stone in the world. Reaching the gallery of little columns, he stopped a moment to take breath and to swear at the interminable staircase by I know not how many millions of cartloads of devils. Then he resumed his ascent by the little door of the North Tower, now closed to the public. A few moments later, after passing the belfry cage, he reached a small landing-place built in a lateral recess, and under the arch 
a low pointed door. An opening cut through the circular wall of the staircase, enabling him to see its enormous lock and strong iron framework. Persons desirous of visiting this door at the present time may recognize it by the inscription in white letters on the black wall, I adore Coralie, 1823, signed Eugène. The word signed is in the original. Oh ho, said the student, this must be the place. The key was in the lock, the door was ajar. He pushed it gently and put his head through the opening. The reader has doubtless seen the admirable works of Rembrandt, that Shakespeare of painting. Among many marvelous engravings, there is one special etching which is supposed to represent Dr. Faustus, and at which it is impossible to look without being dazzled. It represents a dark cell. In the foreground is a table covered with hideous objects, skulls, globes, alembics, compasses, hieroglyphic parchments. The doctor is at this table, dressed in his coarse greatcoat, a furred bonnet pulled down to his eyebrows. He is painted at half length. He has half risen from his vast armchair. His clinched fists rest on the table, and he stares with curiosity and terror at a large luminous circle, composed of magical letters, which gleams on the opposite wall like the solar spectrum in the camera obscura. This cabalistic sun seems to shimmer as we look, and fills the gloomy cell with its mysterious radiance. It is horrible, and the same time beautiful. Something very similar to Faust's cell appeared to Jeanne when he ventured to put his head in at the half-open door. This, too, was a dark and dimly lighted dwelling. Here, too, were the large chair and large table, the compasses and alembics, skeletons of animals hanging from the roof, a globe rolling over the floor, hippocamps pell-mell with glass jars in which quivered leaf gold, death's heads lying on vellum, scrawled over with figures and letters, thick manuscripts, open and piled one upon another, without regard to the fragile corners of the parchment. In short, all the rubbish of science, and over all this litter, dust and cobwebs. But there was no circle of luminous letters, no rapt doctor gazing at the flaming vision as the eagle looks upon the sun. And yet the cell was not deserted. A man sat in the armchair, leaning over the table. Jeanne, to whom his back was turned, could see only his shoulders and the back of his skull, but he found no difficulty in recognizing the bald head, which nature had endowed with an enduring tonsure, as if wishing to mark by this outward symbol the archdeacon's irresistible clerical vocation. Jeanne recognized his brother, but the door had opened so softly that nothing warned Dom Claude of his presence. The curious student took advantage of this fact to examine the cell at his leisure. A large stove, which he had not at first observed, stood to the left of the armchair, under the dormer window. 
the rays of light which penetrated that aperture passed through a round cobweb covering the pointed arch of the window with its delicate tracery, in the center of which the insect architect lay motionless, like the nave of this wheel of lacework. Upon the stove were heaped in confusion all sorts of vessels, earthen flasks, glass retorts, and charcoal mattresses. Jean noticed, with a sigh, that there was not a single saucepan. The kitchen utensils are cold, thought he. Moreover, there was no fire in the stove, and it even seemed as if none had been lighted for a long time. A glass mask, which Jean noted among the alchemist's tools, and doubtless used to protect the archdeacon's face when handling any dangerous substance, lay in one corner, covered with dust, and apparently forgotten. Beside it lay an equally dusty pair of bellows, upon the upper surface of which was the motto, inlaid in copper, Spira, Spera, I breathe, I hope. Other mottos were written on the walls, after the manner of the Hermetics, in great number, some in ink, others engraved with a metal point. Moreover, Gothic letters, Hebrew letters, Greek letters, and Roman letters were used indiscriminately, the inscriptions overlapping each other haphazardly, the newest effacing the oldest, and all entangled together, like the branches in a thicket, like the pikes in an affray. There was a confused medley of all human philosophy, thought, and knowledge. Here and there, one shone out among the rest, like a flag among the spearheads. They were, for the most part, brief Greek or Latin devices, such as the Middle Ages expressed so well. What follows is a series of Greek and Latin phrases that translate as, Whence, thence, man is a monster to men the stars a fortress, the name a wonder, a great book, great evil, dare to be wise, and the spirit blows where it wants. Sometimes a single word without any apparent meaning, which possibly hid a bitter allusion to the monastic system. Sometimes a simple maxim of clerical discipline in the form of a regular hexameter. Caelestem dominum terrestrum dicido dominum. Account the Lord of heaven thy ruler upon earth. There were also Hebrew hieroglyphics, of which Jeon, who did not even know much Greek, could make nothing. And the whole was crisscrossed in every direction with stars, figures of men and animals, and intersecting triangles which contributed not a little to make the blotted wall of the cell look like a sheet of paper which a monkey had bedaubed with an inky pen. The entire abode, moreover, had a look of general desertion and decay, and the bad condition of the implements led to the conjecture that their owner had for some time been distracted from his labors by other cares. This owner, however, bending over a huge manuscript adorned with quaint paintings, seemed tormented by a thought which mingled constantly with his meditations. At least, so Jean judged from hearing him exclaim, with the pensive pauses of a man in a brown study, thinking aloud, Yes, Manu said it, and Zoroaster taught it, 
The sun is the offspring of fire, the moon of the sun. Fire is the central soul of the great whole. Its elementary atoms perpetually overflow and flood the world in boundless currents. At the points where these currents cross in the heavens, they produce light. At their points of intersection on the earth, they produce gold. Light, gold, the same thing, from fire to the concrete state. The difference between the visible and palpable, between the fluid and solid of the same substance, between steam and ice, nothing more. These are not mere dreams. It is the general law of nature. But how are we to wrest from science the secret of this general law? Why this light which irradiates my hand is gold. These self-same atoms, expanded in harmony with a certain law, only require to be condensed in accordance with another law. And how? Some have fancied it was by burying a sunbeam. A Averroes, yes, it was a Averroes. Averroes interred one under the first column to the left in the sanctuary of the Quran, in the great mosque of Cordova. But the vault may not be opened to see if the operation be successful until eight thousand years have passed. The devil, said Jayon aside, this is a long time to wait for a crown. Others have thought, continued the musing archdeacon, that it was better to work with a ray from Sirius. But it is not easy to get such a ray pure, on account of the simultaneous presence of other stars which blend with it. Flamel, what a name for one of the elect. Flama, yes, fire. That is all. The diamond lurks in the coal. Gold is to be found in fire. But how to extract it? Magistry declares that there are certain feminine names possessing so sweet and mysterious a spell that it is enough to pronounce them during the operation. Let us read what Manu says under this head. Where women are reverenced, the divinities rejoice. Where they are scorned, it is vain to pray to God. A woman's mouth is ever pure. It is like running water. It is like a sunbeam. A woman's name should be agreeable, soft, fantastic. It should end with long vowels and sound like words of blessing. Yes, the sage is right. Indeed, Maria, Sophia, Esmera, damnation, again that thought. And he closed the book violently. He passed his hand across his brow, as if to drive away the idea which possessed him. Then he took from the table a nail and a small hammer, the handle of which was curiously painted with cabalistic letters. For some time, he said with a bitter smile, I have failed in all my experiments. A fixed idea possesses me and is burned into my brain as with a red-hot iron. I have not even succeeded in discovering the lost secret of Cassiodorus, whose lamp burned without wick or oil. And yet it is a simple matter. A plague upon him, muttered Jeon. A single wretched thought, then, continued the priest, is enough to make a man weak and mad. Oh, how Claude Pernell would laugh me to scorn! She who could not for an instant turn Nicholas Flamel from his pursuit of the great work.
why I hold in my hand the magic hammer of Ezekiel. At every blow which the terrible rabbi, in the seclusion of his cell, struck on this nail with this hammer, that one of his foes whom he had condemned, were he two thousand leagues away, sank an arm's length into the earth, which swallowed him up. The king of France himself, having one night knocked heedlessly at the magician's door, sank knee-deep into the pavement of his own city in Paris. Well, I have the hammer and the nail, and they are no more powerful tools in my hand than a cooper's tiny mallet would be to a smith. And yet I only need to recover the magic word uttered by Ezekiel as he struck his nail. Nonsense, thought Jeanne. Let me see. Let me try, resumed the archdeacon eagerly. If I succeed, I shall see a blue spark flash from the head of the nail. Imen Hetan, Imen Hetan. That's not it. Sigeani, Sigeani. May this nail open the gates of the tomb for everyone who bears the name of Phoebus. A curse upon it. Always, always and forever the same idea. And he threw the hammer from him angrily. Then he sank so far forward over the table that Jeanne lost sight of him behind the huge back of the chair. For some moments he saw nothing but his fist convulsively clinched upon a book. All at once Dom Claude rose, took up a pair of compasses, and silently engraved upon the wall, in capital letters, this Greek word. Ananke. My brother is mad, said Jeanne to himself. It would have been much simpler to write Fatum. Everyone is not obliged to understand Greek. The archdeacon resumed his seat in his armchair, and bowed his head on his hands, like a sick man whose brow is heavy and burning. The student watched his brother in surprise. He, who wore his heart on his sleeve, who followed no law in the world but the good law of nature, who gave free rein to his passions, and in whom the fountain of strong feeling was always dry, so clever was he at draining it daily. He could not guess the fury with which the sea of human passions bubbles and boils when it is denied all outlet. How it gathers and grows, how it swells, how it overflows, how it wears away the heart, how it breaks forth in repressed sobs and stifled convulsions, until it has rent its dikes and burst its bed. Claude Frollo's stern and icy exterior, that cold surface of rugged and inaccessible virtue, had always misled Jeanne. The jovial student had never dreamed of the boiling lava which lies deep and fiery beneath the snowy front of Etna. We know not if he was suddenly made aware of these things, but— Feather-brained though he was, he understood that he had seen what he was never meant to see, that he had surprised his elder brother's soul in one of its most secret moments, and that he must not let Claude discover it. Noting that the archdeacon had relapsed into his former immobility, he drew his head back very softly, and made a slight noise behind the door, as if he had just arrived, and wished to warn his brother of his approach. "'Come in,' cried the archdeacon from within the cell. "'I expected you. 
I left the door on the latch purposely. Come in, Master Jacques. The student entered boldly. The archdeacon, much annoyed by such a visit in such a place, started in his chair. What? Is it you, Jeanne? It is a J, at any rate, said the student, with his merry, rosy, impudent face. Dom Claude's features resumed their usual severe expression. Why are you here? Brother, replied the student, trying to put on a modest, unassuming, melancholy look, and twisting his cap with an innocent air. I came to ask you, what? For a little moral lecture, which I sorely need. Jeanne dared not add aloud, and a little money, which I need still more sorely. The last part of his sentence was left unspoken. Sir, said the archdeacon in icy tones, I am greatly displeased with you. Alas, sighed the student. Dom Claude turned his chair slightly and looked steadily at Jeanne. I am very glad to see you. This was a terrible beginning. Jeanne prepared for a severe attack. Jeanne, I hear complaints of you every day. How about that beating with which you bruised a certain little Vicomte Albert de Ramonchamp? Oh, said Jeanne, that was nothing. A mischievous page who amused himself with spattering the students by riding his horse through the mud at full speed. How about that Mahiat Fargel, continued the archdeacon, whose gown you tore? Tunicum de Chiraverunt, they tore the robe, the complaint says. Oh, pooh, a miserable Montague cape, that's all. The complaint says tunicum and not capetum. Do you know Latin? Jeanne made no answer. Yes, resumed the priest, shaking his head. This is what study and learning have come to now. The Latin language is hardly understood. Syriac is an unknown tongue. Greek is held in such odium that it is not considered ignorance for the wisest to skip a Greek word without reading it, and to say, Grecum est non legitur. It is in Greek. It is not read. <laughs> is he making fun of us here? The student boldly raised his eyes. Brother, would you like me to explain, in good everyday French, that Greek word written yonder on the wall? Which word? Ananke. A slight flush overspread the archdeacon's dappled cheeks, like the puff of smoke which proclaims to the world the secret commotion of a volcano. The student scarcely noticed it. Well, Jeanne, stammered the elder brother with an effort, what does the word mean? Fate. Dom Claude turned pale again, and the student went on carelessly. And that word below it, written by the same hand, avavia, means impurity. You see, I know my Greek. The archdeacon was still silent. This Greek lesson had given him food for thought. Little Jeanne, who had all the cunning of a spoiled child, thought this a favorable opportunity to prefer his request. He therefore assumed a very sweet tone, and began, My good brother, have you taken such an aversion to me that you pull a long face for a few paltry cuffs and thumps distributed in fair fight to no one knows what boys and monkeys? 
quibusta marmosetis. You see, dear brother Claude, that I know my Latin. But all this affectionate hypocrisy failed of its usual effect on the stern elder brother. Cerberus did not snap at the sop. The archdeacon's brow did not lose a single wrinkle. What are you driving at? said he, dryly. Well, then, to the point. This is it, bravely responded Jeanne. I want money. At this bold declaration, the archdeacon's face assumed quite a paternal and pedagogic expression. You know, Master Jeanne, that our tear-shop estate only brings us in, reckoning the taxes and the rents of the twenty-one houses, thirty-nine pounds, eleven pence, and six Paris farthings. It is half as much again as in the time of the Paclay brothers, but it is not much. I want money, stoically repeated Jeanne. You know that it has been officially decided that our twenty-one houses were held in full fee of the bishopric, and that we can only buy ourselves off from this homage by paying two silver gilt marks of the value of six Paris pounds to the right reverend bishop. Now I have not yet been able to save up those two marks. You know this. I know that I want money, repeated Jeanne for the third time. And what would you do with it? This question made the light of hope shine in Jeanne's eyes. He resumed his demure, caressing manner. See here, dear brother Claude, I do not come to you with any evil intention. I don't want to cut a dash at the tavern with your money, or to walk the streets of Paris in garments of gold brocade with my lackey, Cumameo Laquazio. No, brother, I want the money for a charity. What charity? asked Claude with some surprise. There are two of my friends who want to buy an outfit for the child of a poor widow in the Audrey almshouse. It is a real charity. It will cost three florins. I want to give my share. Who are your two friends? Pierre Lassomeur and Baptiste Croquoison. Hm, said the archdeacon. Those names are as fit for charity as a bombard for the high altar. Certainly Jeanne had chosen very suspicious names for his two friends, as he felt when it was too late. And then, added the sagacious Claude, what kind of an outfit could you buy for three florins, and for the child of one of the women in the Audrey almshouse, too? How long have those widows had babies in swaddling clothes? Jeanne broke the ice once more. Well, then, if I must tell you, I want the money to go see Isabeau Latieri tonight at the Val d'Amour. Impure scamp, cried the priest. Ava via, said Jeanne. This quotation, borrowed perhaps maliciously by the student from the wall of the cell, produced a strange effect upon the priest. He bit his lip, and his rage was extinguished in a blush. Be gone he said to Jeanne. I am expecting someone. The student made another effort. Brother Claude, at least give me a few farthings for food. How far have you got in Gratian's decretals? asked Dom Claude. I've lost my copy books. Where are you in the Latin humanities? Somebody has stolen my copy of Horace. Where are you in Aristotle?
My faith, brother, what father of the church says that the errors of heretics have in all ages taken refuge in the brambles of Aristotle's metaphysics? Plague take Aristotle. I will not destroy my religion with his metaphysics. Young man, resumed the archdeacon. At the king's last entry, there was a gentleman called Philippe de Comines, who had embroidered on his horse's housings this motto, which I advise you to consider. Qui non laborat non manducet. He who will not work shall not eat. The student was silent for a moment, his finger to his ear, his eye fixed upon the ground, and an angry air. Suddenly he turned to Claude with the lively quickness of a water-wag-tail. So, good brother, you refuse to give me a penny to buy a crust from a baker. Qui non laborat non manducet. At this reply from the inflexible archdeacon, Jean hid his face in his hands like a woman sobbing, and exclaimed in accents of despair, Some long series of Greek-looking syllables. "'What do you mean by that, sir?' asked Claude, amazed at this outburst. "'Why,' said the student, and he looked up at Claude with impudent eyes, into which he had just rubbed his fists to make them look red with crying, "'it is Greek. It is an anapest of Aeschylus, which expresses grief perfectly.' And here he burst into laughter so absurd and so violent that it made the archdeacon smile. It was really Claude's fault.' Why had he so spoiled the child? Oh, good brother Claude, added Jeanne, emboldened by this smile. Just see my broken buskins. Was there ever more tragic cothernus on earth than boots with flapping soles? The archdeacon had promptly resumed his former severity. I will send you new boots, but no money. Only a paltry penny, brother continued the suppliant Jeanne. I will learn Gratian by heart. I will believe heartily in God. I will be a regular Pythagoras of learning and virtue. But give me a penny for pity's sake. Would you have me devoured by famine, which gapes before me with its jaws blacker, more noisome, deeper than Tartarus or a monk's nose? Dom Claude shook his wrinkled brow. Queen non laborat... Jeanne did not let him finish. "'Well, then,' he cried, "'to the devil! Hooray for fun! I'll go to the tavern, I'll fight, I'll drink, and I'll go to see the girls!' And upon this he flung up his cap and cracked his fingers like castanets. The archdeacon looked at him with a gloomy air. "'Jeanne, you have no soul!' In that case, according to Epicurus, I lack an unknown quantity composed of unknown qualities. Jeanne, you must think seriously of reform. Oh, come, cried the student, gazing alternately at his brother and at the alembics on the stove. Is everything crooked here, ideas as well as bottles? Jeanne, you are on a very slippery road. Do you know where you are going? To the tavern, said Jeanne. The tavern leads to the pillory. It's as good a lantern as any other, and perhaps it was the one with which Diogenes found his man. The pillory leads to the gallows. The gallows is a balance, with a man in one scale and the whole world in the other. 
it's a fine thing to be the man. The gallows leads to hell. That's a glorious fire. Jeanne, Jeanne, you will come to a bad end. I shall have had a good beginning. At this moment, the sound of footsteps was heard on the stairs. Silence, said the archdeacon, putting his finger to his lip. Here comes Master Jacques. Listen, Jeanne, he added in a low voice. Take care you never mention what you may see and hear here. Hide yourself quickly under that stove, and don't dare to breathe. The student crawled under the stove. There, a capital idea occurred to him. By the way, Brother Claude, I want a florin for holding my breath. Silence, you shall have it. Then give it to me. Take it, said the archdeacon, angrily, flinging him his purse. Jeanne crept farther under the stove, and the door opened. Chapter 5 The Two Men Dressed in Black The person who entered wore a black gown and a gloomy air. Our friend Jeanne, who, as may readily be supposed, had so disposed himself in his corner that he could see and hear everything at his good pleasure, was struck at the first glance by the extreme melancholy of the newcomer's face and attire. Yet a certain amiability pervaded the countenance, albeit it was the amiability of a cat or a judge, a sickly amiability. The man was very gray, wrinkled, bordering on sixty years, had white eyebrows, hanging lip, and big hands. When Jeanne saw that he was a mere nobody, that is, probably a doctor or a magistrate, and that his nose was very far away from his mouth, a sure sign of stupidity, he curled himself up in his hiding-place, in despair at having to pass an indefinite length of time in so uncomfortable a position and in such poor company. Meantime, the archdeacon did not even rise from his chair to greet this person. He signed to him to be seated on a stool near the door, and after a few moments' silence, which seemed the continuation of a previous meditation, he said, in a somewhat patronizing tone, "'Good morning, Master Jacques.' "'Your servant, Master,' replied the man in black. In the two ways of pronouncing, on the one hand, that Master Jacques, and on the other, that distinctive Master, there was the difference that there is between Domine and Domne. It bespoke the greeting of teacher and pupil. "'Well,' resumed the archdeacon, after a fresh pause, which Master Jacques took care not to break, "'Have you succeeded?' "'Alas, master,' said the other with a sad smile, "'I am still blowing away, as many ashes as I choose, but not a particle of gold.' Dom Claude made an impatient gesture. "'I'm not talking about that, Master Jacques Charmolou, but about the trial of your sorcerer, Marc Senen. Wasn't that what you called him? The butler to the court of accounts? Does he confess his magic? Was the rack successful?' Alas, no, replied Master Jacques, still with the same sad smile. We have not had that consolation. The man is as hard as flint. We might boil him at the pig market before he would say a word. And yet we have spared nothing to get at the truth. All his bones are out of joint already. We have left no stone unturned. As the old comic author Plautus says, 
adversum stimulos laminas crucesque compadesque, nervos catenas carceres numelas pedicas boyas, against goads, hot blades, torture, shackles, straps, chains, dungeons, iron collars. All in vain. The man is terrible indeed. I can't make him out. You've not found anything new at his house. Yes, indeed, said Master Jacques, fumbling in his purse. This parchment. There are words written on it which we cannot comprehend. And yet the criminal lawyer, Philippe Lullier, knows a little Hebrew, which he picked up in that affair of the Jews in the Rue Cantersten at Brussels. So saying, Master Jacques unrolled a parchment. Give it to me, said the archdeacon, and casting his eyes over the writing, he exclaimed, Clear magic, Master Jacques. Amen etan. That is the cry of the vampires as they appear at their Sabbath. Per ipsum et cum ipso et in ipso. That is the word of command which retains the devil in hell. Hacks, packs, max. This belongs to medicine, a prescription against the bite of mad dogs. Master Jacques, you are the king's attorney to the ecclesiastical court. This parchment is an abomination. We will return the man to the rack. Here again, added Master Jacques, rummaging in his wallet once more, is something else which we found in Marc Senen's house. It was a vessel similar to those which covered Dom Claude's stove. Ah, said the archdeacon, an alchemist's crucible. I must confess, replied Master Jacques, with his shy, awkward smile, that I tried it on my furnace, but I succeeded no better than with my own. The archdeacon began to examine the vessel. What has he inscribed upon this crucible? Ach! Ach! The word which drives away fleas? This Mark Zanen is a dolt. I can easily believe that you will never make gold with this. Put it in your alcove in summer, for that's all it's fit for. Talking of mistakes, said the king's proxy, I have just been studying the porch below before I came upstairs. Is your reverence very sure that it is the opening of the book of physics which is represented there on the side towards the hospital, and that, of the seven nude figures at the feet of the Virgin, the one with wings at his heels is meant for Mercury? Yes, replied the priest. It is so written by Augustin Nepo, that Italian doctor who had a bearded, familiar spirit, which taught him everything. However, we will go down, and I will explain all this to you on the spot. Thanks, master, said Charmelou, bowing to the ground. By the way, I forgot. When will it please you to have the little witch arrested? What witch? That gypsy girl, whom you know well, who comes every day and dances in the square before the cathedral, despite the official prohibition. She has a goat which is possessed, and which has the devil's own horns which reads and writes, and is as good a mathematician as Picatrix. It would be quite enough to hang an entire tribe of gypsies. The papers are ready. The case will be a short one, I warrant. A pretty creature, by my soul, that dancing girl. The finest black eyes. Two carbuncles. When shall we begin? The archdeacon was extremely pale. I will let you know he stammered in a voice which was scarcely articulate.
Then he added, with an effort, Devote yourself to Mark Sinen. Never fear, said Charmeleau, smiling. I'll have him re-strapped to the leather bed when I go back. But he's a devil of a fellow. He would tire out Pierrot Torteru himself, and his hands are bigger than mine. As the worthy Plautus says, Nudus vinctus centum pondo es quando pendes per pedes. Bound, naked, you weigh a hundred pounds when you are hung up by the feet. The torture of the wheel, that's the best thing we have. He shall take a turn at that. Dom Claude seemed absorbed in gloomy reverie. He turned to Charmeleau with the words, Master Pierrot, Master Jacques, I mean, devote yourself to Marc Senen. Yes, yes, Dom Claude. Poor man, he must have suffered like Momol. But then, what an idea, to go to the witch's Sabbath, a butler of the court of accounts, who must know Charlemagne's text, Striga vel masca, a witch or ghost. As for that little girl, Smeralda, as they call her, I will await your orders. Ah, and as we pass through the porch, you will also explain to me the meaning of the gardener painted in relief at the entrance to the church. The sower, isn't it? Eh, master, what are you thinking about? Dom Claude, lost in his own thoughts, did not hear him. Charmeleau, following the direction of his gaze, saw that it was fixed mechanically upon the large cobweb which covered the window. At this instant, a rash fly, in search of the March sun, plunged headlong into the trap and was caught in it. At the vibration of its web, the huge spider made a sudden sally from its central cell, and with one bound fell upon the fly, which it doubled up with its front antennae, while its hideous proboscis dug out the head. "'Poor fly,' said the king's proxy to the ecclesiastical court, and he raised his hand to save it. The archdeacon, with a start, held back his arm with convulsive force. "'Master Jacques,' he cried, "'do not interfere with the work of fate.' The attorney turned in alarm. He felt as if iron pincers had seized his arm." The priest's eye was fixed, wild, and flaming, and was still fastened upon the horrible little group of the spider and the fly. "'Oh, yes,' added the priest, in a voice which seemed to come from his very entrails. "'This is a universal symbol. The insect flies about, is happy, is young. It seeks the spring sun, the fresh air, freedom. Oh, yes,' but it runs against the fatal web. The spider appears, the hideous spider. Poor dancing girl, poor predestined fly. Master Jacques, do not interfere. It is the hand of fate. Alas, Claude, you are the spider. Claude, you are the fly as well. You flew abroad in search of learning, light, and sun. Your only desire was to gain the pure air, the broad light of eternal truth. But in your haste to reach the dazzling window which opens into the other world, the world of intellect, light, and learning, blind fly, senseless doctor, you failed to see that subtle spider's web woven by fate between the light and you. You plunged headlong into it, 
wretched fool, and now you struggle in its meshes, with bruised head and broken wings, in the iron grasp of destiny. Master Jacques, Master Jacques, let the spider do its work. I assure you, said Charmelou, looking at him uncomprehendingly, I will not touch it. But for mercy's sake, master, let go my arm. Your hand is like a pair of pincers. The archdeacon did not hear him. Oh, madman, he resumed, without taking his eyes from the window. And if you could have broken this dreadful web with your frail wings, do you think you could have reached the light? Alas, how could you have passed that pane of glass beyond it? that transparent obstacle, that crystal wall harder than iron, which separates all philosophy from truth. O oh, vanity of science! How many sages have flown from afar to bruise their heads against it! How many contending systems have rushed pell-mell against that everlasting pane of glass! He ceased speaking. These last ideas— which had insensibly diverted his thoughts from himself to science, seemed to have calmed him. Jacques Charmolou completely restored him to a sense of reality by asking him this question. "'Come, master, when are you going to help me to make gold? I long for success.' The archdeacon shook his head with a bitter smile. "'Master Jacques, read Michel Celis.' Dialogue de Energia et Apparitione Daimonum, Dialogues upon the Powers and Works of Demons. Our work is not altogether innocent. Not so loud, master. I fear you are right, said Charmelou, but I must needs dabble a little in hermetics, being only the king's proxy to the ecclesiastical court, at a salary of thirty tours crowns a year. But speak lower. At this moment the sound of champing and chewing proceeding from under the stove attracted Charmelou's anxious ear. "'What was that?' he asked. It was the student, who, greatly cramped and much bored in his hiding-place, had contrived to find an old crust of bread and a bit of moldy cheese, and had set to work to devour them without more ado, by the way of consolation and of breakfast. As he was ravenously hungry— he made a great deal of noise, and smacked his lips loudly over every mouthful, as to give the alarm to the lawyer. "'It is my cat,' said the archdeacon hastily, feasting under there upon some mouse. This explanation satisfied Charmelou. "'Indeed, master,' he replied with a respectful smile. "'Every philosopher has had his familiar animal. You know what Servius says.' Nullus enim locus sine genio est. There is no place without its genius. But Dom Claude, who feared some fresh outbreak from Jeanne, reminded his worthy disciple that they had certain figures on the porch to study together, and the two left the cell to the great relief of the student, who began seriously to fear that his knees would leave their permanent mark upon his chin.' 